Welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring, and Essential Conversations podcast, brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. We have seen, both in our lives and in the research, that well-being inspires well-doing. And so today we're going to share with you a resilience practice. You don't need to close your eyes. Just take a moment and listen. Okay. Let me start out with this. This is kind of a joke that I I read through. It's out of the Stuart Stuart pen book. Maybe I'll have to get this on one of our other terms. But it starts out with a picture of Earth and Saturn. And you know, we all know Saturn has this ring around it. And so it actually looks like a doctor at the time. And it has a picture of Earth, and Earth has a thermometer in it. And, you know, uh, it appears that Earth is sick. And Saturn's remarks were, hmm, I think you have humans. And so <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke. I hope, I hope that's indicative of what we're dealing with today because uh, our planet seems to have a, a few illnesses all around it from the floods, the fires. Uh, all the different things that we see today, the wind from one day to the next. So that gives us a little humor of our buddy planets is telling us, hey, I think you have humans. That's your problem. So <laughs> our, our job as stewardess is to fix that problem. So I wanted to lead out with that and say a few things in regards. Maybe somebody will laugh. We are infested, right? Earth is infested with humans. <laughs> that is our <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And I'm Andrea Dalton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. On our podcast, we explore varied perspectives in the goal to nurture knowledge and inspire courage for practical, transformative action. We are delighted that you've joined us today, and we are also delighted about our guest. Yes, we're really excited to have our guest today, especially after that lead-in. Jamal Shakur is with us today. And so, Jamal, I'm going to ask you just to introduce yourself. Tell us what you do here in the world and uh, a little bit about yourself so our listeners can get to know you. Okay. Well, as she said, my name is Jamal Shakur. I'm very happy to be here amongst friends. Um, What I have been doing at one time in my life, I wanted to be a fireman. And uh, I thought that was very interesting. As I look back on my life now, if the term fireman can be used for putting out fires in humans' lives, and even with mine, I think I reached that, that goal. What I do right now, I work for the Kansas City Health Department. And so, as you know, the Kansas City Health Department, our job is to uh, promote practices in health. And so right now, personally, I think I'm, I have fulfilled some of my goals uh, as that fireman. Uh, I work in health literacy right now, currently. Prior to that, I worked in the violence prevention department, which was a a trial for me each and every day. We see some things that we wouldn't see Monday or Tuesday, but come back Wednesday, we might see it again. So it was a a cycle. One of the things that I think I accomplished in that was uh, we first had a, a time convincing people that violence as a commutable disease. But as time went on and we had other people to morph into the concept and understand the concept, then we see it exactly because it has the propensity to spread just like other diseases. 
And so we have uh, the health department and other agencies uh, bought on to that and has put that into practice and even mentioned those things today as we speak. I worked there for 12 and a half years. It was a daunting task, as I said. And that's why I met this group of ladies, wonderful ladies, teaching trauma-informed care. And so I uh, didn't know much about it, except that I was being exposed to it constantly, mm-hmm. constantly, until those were terms that came out to understand uh, about what we call the ACEs score, the ACEs test, trauma, and vicarious trauma was a word that I had used so much that some of my coworkers told me, you need to stop using that word. Uh, It was a new word for me, it was a new term, but it was something about it that seemed to match what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we see trauma, we would take it home, didn't realize it when we see trauma. So those are some of the things that I've learned uh, in that practice about uh, trauma and it's still today is a big part of my life. And uh, now I'm in uh, health literacy where we're teaching actually the uh, promotion of health literacy to people, particularly this COVID situation, COVID-19. And now we're talking about monkeypox. So we try to stay adverse in uh, in that information so that not only for ourselves teaching trauma wellness, but also uh, passing that information on to our family and friends. Yeah. Thank you, Jamal. That's, it's good to hear that breadth of experience. And I really like that analogy of the fireman, like you're you just, you turned out to be a different kind of fireman than you thought. And I was really struck by your, by your description of violence being a communicable disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you went on to talk about trauma. And, you know, we talk about that a lot, how it's very contagious. Uh, maybe contagious is not exactly the right word, but it does spread. And mm-hmm. it is, there are ongoing cycles of violence and trauma that we see again and again in our communities. Right. So I wonder, in just observing all of that, have you also observed some antidotes to that? Have you observed situations where maybe something like resilience or hope or know, some of those things spread. Yeah, I think we, we've experienced all of those things just recently with the opening up of since COVID-19, how individuals are really resilient when it comes to uh, a trauma. And one of the things that I, I think that we have to do as Stuart in, in this business, in this work, is uh, involved and educate people. I love the term health literacy because we have an opportunity to educate people in those particular areas where people need that. Talking about just things like the ACEs score. And I, and I have to refer back to the trauma-informed care that I, I, I had at the hospital that you guys taught. Uh, they gave me some information, gave me some ammunition to better myself. And one of the things that I've learned in this field is that uh, when you talk about something that's uh, very critical, you have to have some facts. And that's your defense. And uh, people will challenge you on it. Where did you get that from? Who told you that? And so I've learned to have facts that are, of course, you could take it how you want it, but these are the facts. And so uh, one of the things that even about trauma and uh, the things that I learned about it was that these things that were factual and scientific facts helps out uh, more than just what we hear nowadays when you see Facebook, just people blasting mm-hmm. with information that they got from <laughs> the streets and, uh, you know, things like that. So 
learning is is a key element in what we're doing today. It, it may be a little bit of a cliche, but it makes me think of that phrase, knowledge is power. And, uh, it, but it really is, right? Like the more we learn, the more we uncover. And I mean, that's another kind of contagion, right? I know, especially for me, like I love learning. And so learning new things and reading new things and getting that new information, like just opens up more doors and it can spread hope. And mm. that's what uh, we see. We really did see that after the first bout of COVID, how people were so much willing to get back out and do things that they were doing. And they were uh, embedded with knowledge of how to keep practices safe, how to stay safe distancing, how to wash your hands. These are some of the things that people wear masks. These are some of the things that people still use today that uh, for me, fortunately, I hadn't had COVID, and but I try to use these practices. But this give me some resilience. It gives you some armor. It gives you some things that you feel that you've been equipped before. Uh, you didn't before. You weren't equipped with this. And so now you know there's limits. You have limits and you have information that you can use and share. And so uh, I think that's one of the things that gave, uh, if that's answering the question, I know it's a roundabout way to maybe get back to the point of, uh, Roxanne has her hand up, so uh, <laughs> I think get in there. I would love for you to think back just a little bit into the work you were doing previously. So previous to the healthcare literacy work, the violence interruption. And I know that you spent a lot of time with people who were victims of violence in the hope that you could support them in such a way that they didn't want to um, get back at those who hurt them. You know, they didn't want to continue the cycle of, vi- of violence. And I wonder if you could share, if anything comes to mind, anything you learned from working with those who have been impacted by violence about the resilience that is there in the community. You know, we might not always be aware of it, looking at it from the outside, but I'm wondering as you worked with these survivors, what bubbled up? Was there something that bubbled up more than once? That was a source of resilience for someone who has been terribly, uh, terribly wounded physically and emotionally uh, and socially. Where do those folks in your experience draw some of their um, strength and ability to recover? Wow. What a question. 2018, uh, there was over 581, 581 gunshot wound victims in oh research and trauma. And there was three or four of us that had to go and see some of these people. And so, yes, Roxanne, oh my. Uh, that was a very tough time because some of the people we got closely involved with, mm-hmm. some more than others, because mm-hmm. personally, we would, if, if there was a victim that would uh, lose their life, we would try to figure out a strategy, how to go to the family, because when we pulled up, as aim for peace, a lot of those people were looking at us as enemies or, quote unquote, uh, have ties to law enforcement. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. this is just un- this is because of their didn't have the right understanding of what we really do, and so we would go to them and try to figure out how could we talk about that family member that didn't want to retaliate because when they gang together, you go up and there's music playing and there's drinking in some cases, then the atmosphere is is really a tough atmosphere to go to and try to tell somebody who's just seen their loved one shot or killed, shot or killed, it don't matter. Sometimes more so anger than others. But we had to figure out a way to get up and try to 
infiltrate that mentality at the time and get people to say, no, we don't want to go back and retaliate, like you mentioned, compared to let's think this out. And if the person, unfortunately, had was deceased, we would try to get them to talk about other things like funeral plans. What would the, what did the person think about? What would the person do in your position? And so it was a lot of different uh, methods that we had to use depending on where we were at geographically. Some zones, we couldn't even go in ourselves. A lot of times, uh, one of the things that the organization did was try to hire people from certain areas so that person can be a, a person that know, knew some of the family members. And they could go and talk to the family member, uncle, auntie, niece, cousin, whoever. I know that family. Let me go and try to reach out to them. So, yeah, those ways, uh, we just recently, uh, this year, we had a young man that had got shot. I'm not going to mention his name, but we would visit him, take him to doctors, hospitals, did what we could to try to keep this young man around. And unfortunately, just this year, he passed away. Mm-hmm. And so that was, uh, there's many stories like that. That's why it helps to have um, organizations to teach about trauma, because if you don't know about them, you can be very stuck in a, in a situation where when your time comes to trauma, you don't have a way, you don't have a way out, or you don't know what to do. So uh, kudos to, to you, because I remember uh, some of the mindfulness that we got from the trauma-informed care that you taught at the hospital. So once again, uh, Andrea, uh, we're talking about knowledge is power. If if someone could teach you a method to break that cycle and have resilience instead of going backwards because our ability as, as human beings is to be resilient if we know it. Yeah, and so I hear kind of two things, at least two things as I'm listening to you share, Jamal. I hear one one of the ways, one of the resources, if you will, the external resources to help people when they've been literally a a victim of violence, like absolutely traumatized, either shot or seen a loved one shot is this, the relationships they have in the community. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you might reach out to someone who knows them and cares for them and has a relationship with them to help support them. So that's a, a, a kind of an informal external resource. And then the formal external resource, which was actually the team that you worked with, which was this group of people who were trained to go in and provide care and support uh, in many different ways, ongoing ways to help make sure that the needs of the person who's been traumatized are met mm-hmm. and to help them be better. And in telling that, then there's the second thing I heard which is the impact that kind of work has on the helper, mm-hmm. on the caregiver. And so, so that's probably going to lead us into a next, the next portion of this discussion, which is about caregiver resilience mm-hmm. and caregiver well-being. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I was thinking again, how you said earlier, about things being contagious and, and then your comment about how people kind of gave you a, a, a little bit of a hard time for going around talking about vicarious uh, wow. trauma all the time. But of course you were talking about vicarious trauma all the time. You were all experiencing vicarious trauma all the time. And I think um, sometimes when we're in the mix of it, we don't always realize that that is impacting us so deeply. You know, I worked in inpatient behavioral health for a long time and I didn't realize that what I was experiencing a lot of the time was vicarious trauma or secondary trauma or, I mean, 
to take it even further, compassion mm-hmm. fatigue, moral injury, burnout. Like I didn't have those words. I didn't have those concepts to describe it. But right. when I finally did learn those mm-hmm. things, learn about those things, it opened up this realization for me that not only was I not broken, right? <laughs> because right. it was normal that I was experiencing those things given what I had been exposed to. And there was healing. There's healing possible from all of those things. And we if often you have know. to, if you, if know, you know what yeah, you're going that, that's what you're, that's what you're dealing oh, with. So there's a good supplement to, to talk about if you know, you know, right. And I would Jamal, you and I have something in common and that we spent have spent decades being religious leaders, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, formal. I think Andrea has also been a religious leader in a more informal way, but I know they didn't teach me anything in seminary, anything about how the going caring for the wounded people was going to impact me. And I also transferred in a lot of hours from a degree in just regular counseling. And in that coursework, I didn't have anything about trauma exposure or compassion fatigue, or burnout, or what to do. And so if we are going around helping people and having these normal experiences and thinking that we're broken, like I remember having a parishioner go through some terrible things and confided in me some of the things that happened. And I had dreams about her trauma. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that that was a symptom of trauma exposure or vicarious trauma. I just thought I was mentally ill or, um, weak. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't set a boundary around that. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Right. 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 Yeah. I think, uh, uh, as we see here discussing, I think we all come up with ideas and, and go back and recess into our mind, what could be done, what more could be done and how to help that. And you say that fire, fireman or firewoman who's out there putting up, putting out all the fly flames. And when he goes home, he's still, going off the fire on his own self, you know, because of how he has uh, still, still feels like, you know, this is my job. So one of the things that we did try to do at the health board was try to mandate different events to try to get away. And Mm -hmm. I I know this was planned in a strategic way to help some of our people in the organization, but a way to do these things have to be a continual to still reach out to people even after they've uh, been through some of the things that you and I, you, me and you and uh, Andrea have done or talked about, because it's an ongoing process. And it's, it's uh, I'm just amazed that we're having this conversation and I appreciate it, really. And so hopefully that people will benefit from the conversation that we're having because we all go out all the time. I tell people all the time, even if it's not a fireman, it's that Superman outfit that you go out with and you expect to go out every day and expose it. And come back strong. You have a family. You have friends who look forward to you. And you're not the one that's supposed to be, as you would say, have those illnesses. But we do. And so mm-hmm. I'm one who welcomed that information because I've uh, I've experienced some of those feelings. I've experienced some of those vicariousness from other people. And so there has to be some challenges to met to continue to keep people. Uh, well, there's a real need for intentional support for one another when we are working in those kinds of spaces where we do have exposure to a lot of trauma. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned like getting away from it somehow. I wonder if you can think of other 
examples maybe from that work or other places too, where there was intentional support for resilience. Maybe no one called it that, but that's what it was, uh, whether through relationships or activities or. I think you, you, you become creative and really, you know, liking, finding out what you really like to do and then being 10 in that, and that's supposed to give you some resolve and help and resiliency. And it does work. But how many of us afford to take off a month? You know, we, mm-hmm. we, two days is, 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 is rest time. But when we talk about the mind needs a chance to clear out and the body needs to catch up with that, you know, those are the things that I think we're, we're lacking. But once again, when people find out this is what's needed in their life, even if you like to paint, draw, I like to work on houses for uh, you know, uh, those are some of the things that you find yourself getting some uh, relief or wellness in. And so being intentional is something that I think the workplace has to put in place. I Right now I'm working four, 10 hour days. People say, oh man, that's a long day. But today I'm I'm off. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm really trying to enjoy it. It's been my third week of doing it. And so it's given me a chance to breathe a little bit, especially, um, with so much going on today, uh, I have a friend in Kentucky who's talking about the flooding in Kentucky. And wow, you know, uh, so you talk to your family, your human family, you find out how much we really are alike, no matter what color we are. That made me think of it when you said, Jamal, get to know yourself and find out what you really like to do and what fills you up, what can help clear your mind and let your body catch up and how that's different than you know, the next person. Right. And, uh, personally I can share that for many, many years, I thought I should, and I use that word should on purpose, um, that my self-care should look like going to the gym and working out. And I do not like gyms. Uh, they're, you know, I'm, they're fine for people who love them. I don't feel comfortable in a gym. I feel very inept. I feel very intimidated. I feel like my stress level goes up the minute I walk in. Um, but one thing that I love to do, and I didn't realize it was a resilience practice, is I love to sing and dance on stage with a group of people who are making some kind of creative production. Okay. So like think musical theater somewhere in the park, amateur, right? I'm not talking pro. I'm just talking a bunch of people who love music and get together and we sing and we dance. And I will tell you, I work so hard. I could work 10 hours in a row. I could be dancing and sweat pouring off me and feeling muscles I've never felt before. Like people do in the gym, right? Sweat pouring off them, feeling muscles. I can be out of breath. I can burn all these calories. It never occurred to me that that was a valid form of taking care of myself, that that was a valid form of exercise of my mind and my body, that that was a valid form of rejuvenation until very recently. Like I'm saying in the last year and I'm 53 years old, (laughs) I've walked around with a sense of shame that I don't like to go to the gym. And then I was like, you know, wait a minute, there is a thing I like to do that makes me out of breath and I sweat and I work really hard. And so I just share that with our listeners to say, whatever it is for you, right? There's a thing and it doesn't have to look like everyone else's thing. It can bring you so much joy and release. And the importance of finding that can be key to navigating these normal experiences of vicarious trauma. In, in today's livelihood, people, they're so pent up in the house, you know, almost afraid to get back out. And getting back out does mean a chance of getting COVID and uh, becoming ill. And then 
we we were just mentioning this morning on a Zoom meeting with our director uh, that you know one of our jobs is trying to keep people uh, calm. You know, show people what calmness can be, and as you just spoke about it, it calmness doesn't necessarily have to be uh, quiet. You know, calmness right. that you just spoke. Uh, there's a way to be calmness that can support your your own self and what you like to do. But being calm at that in that moment in time, even if if it's like listening to music, I know music has a great effect on people. But people like to go out and talk loud. Okay, that's fine. Why don't you go somewhere where you can talk loud and don't interrupt anybody, and you find yourself feeling like you accomplished something. You just have to share ways on how to get people to have that resilience. Uh, uh, in, a, in times of what may seem to be in uh, trouble or strife. It sounds to me, Jamal, like you've had some conversations with people where you've helped them figure out what fills yeah. them with well, resilience. I say, yeah, but you know, when I say, when I, I really do mean this, when I say I wanted to be a fireman, maybe that was the wrong thing to ask God. I guess that's one of the things, say, be careful what you ask because you might get it. Right. I, I guarantee you, before the, the day's over, I'll get a call like, hey, my car is not working or my aunties don't have any food or just what I need to do to get a job. I, I get these calls, I guarantee you, every day and Sundays, maybe double. But, you know, people are just needing uh, support on what to do at times. And I think people have a responsibility First, yourself first. If yourself is not together, you can't help anybody else. And so uh, I think in charge of what are we talking about doing is that how to be mindful to yourself first and really realize it, and then you can help others. But I, I have to remind people that it doesn't work unless you're you're mindful of yourself. Even I've, I've chose to take three days a week to go off and because I could have a real extra one day by myself, not doing anything. And I, and I think it's a benefit for me. I can't speak for anybody else, but for me. And so whatever uh, we can help people identify, it don't have to be much, but simple. And I think we can get resolved from our family and friends. Yeah, that really highlights for me something that Roxanne and I say a lot in trainings or conversations with folks is that healing happens in relationships. And maybe one of the most important contexts for relationship is the relationship we have with ourselves too. Mm, Like we often don't think about that as being an important relationship that we nurture, Uh, but how, how impactful that is when we do take the time to center, identify what's going on, with ourselves, figure out what works for us, what doesn't work for us sometimes, uh, like in Roxanne's example, um, and, and nurturing that relationship. So then we can, when we're ready, when we have the capacity to do that, uh, provide that kind of relationship for other people who are hurting and may need some support too. I do remember an op- uh, one night, one of my coworkers, Roxanne, his, you remember Rashid, I think, and uh, Calvin Neal was out there one night. And we were all at one of the locations where we, we meet people that we consider maybe be in the high risk category. And we were out passing out pamphlets and things and stuff, having a conversation. I'm just having a good time, really, actually. 
And boy, some shots rang out, right? And they were actually shooting at us. And nobody was hurt or hit that time. But what it, what it did show us is that we immediately got together the next few days and had a, a debriefing about it. And we dispersed, you know, everybody went their own ways. And then we called and checked on each other to see how everybody was doing after that episode, because that was very traumatic. Yeah. What we did do in a time of trauma, and this is one of the things that we do forget sometimes, is reach out and just check on people. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd be surprised uh, just calling people and just say, Hey, I just want to hear your voice. I just want to say hello. I just want to say, did you watch the game? You like barbecue? Those things are really, really, really superior when it comes to reassuring a person that they do have resiliency. Because now that person starts to say, you know, that person wasn't so bad. You know what? I'm going to get back out there. You know what? It gives a person hope as we talk about resilience and, and what we do in life. And the life has to reflect what we do as stewards. We, it has to reflect not only what we talk about, but what we do. So I, I love that word steward. Mm-hmm. I love that word. We are caretakers of something, right? We are trauma stewards uh, in reference to the book that you mentioned earlier that had that delightful cartoon, that trauma stewardship is a book by Laura Vandernut Lipsky. That really um, is a powerful explanation with guidance uh, Mm. for those of us who work in the field of helping others. And it doesn't have to be formally. I mean, anyone who helps others, right? You take care of kids, you take care of aging parents, you take care of the planet, Um, you you take care of your neighbors. It it could be a good book uh, for you. Um, And I also like the idea of a steward of hope, Mm -hmm. right? And so I wonder if you could tell us about you shared when we were talking before we started recording of a person you knew in the neighborhood who had started or maybe restarted a program for youth. Mm-hmm. And could you share a little bit about, you don't have to say the name if you don't want to, but you can share about the program and how maybe that is uh, building hope in the community. Well, I think there's, there are many without saying one. So that if I, if this is seen by somebody, they can okay. say, say my name, You, but there are many. There's, as I said, I mentioned Pat Clark, who's working with the children, and I and I say that, and for peace, I have to say them. I'm not working with them anymore, but I have seen the work, the body of work that they've done. Uh, Mr. Brooks put them forth a program that's headed by Dan, Dan, Damon Daniels now, uh, that's working in behalf. There's a number of organizations that are really out there trying to help people find their way. Just the one who, the the person who's working with the children, because we do know from the field of trauma-informed care, we know that if you are a child and you have some adverse childhood experiences, that if you have even one adult in your life, one adult that you can talk to, could be a neighbor, a friend, a coach, somewhere you feel safe and heard, then that can change the trajectory of your life. So how do children get involved? What's happening for the kids with that program? There's... Pat Clark, that his program, I actually visited him on Monday and I see him out taking some of the children out in the neighborhood and, and uh, showing them the pride of keeping oh. the neighborhood clean. Oh. A lot of people would frown on that, but I, I guarantee you those kids that are learning that right now, when they get up at some age, oh, yeah. their own property, they'll remember that and they'll respect those lessons of life. Grateful Education Foundation 
who I have to say this, my wife, she taught the STEM program the past couple of weeks to the children. It was amazing to see how the children really understands better the picture of science, technology, uh, engineering, and math. And that's what they teach. And amazing how smart these children are, really are given the right opportunity to learn. There's mothers in charge that's been out reaching out to families of, and victims in the community. And I really see that they have put work and time into the community with the hope of helping people. There's so, so many programs. Well, let me interrupt you for a sec, because you mentioned someone who's really important in your life, mm-hmm. which would be your wife. Yes. And I wonder, as far as you feel comfortable, would you like to share some of what she's up to in the world in terms of supporting resilience? She's a she's a teacher at Hipman Mills, although she taught at Kansas City Public School for 20 years. And so she's uh, decided that she really wanted her passion was teaching and more and more hands on with making sure children understand some of the high quality education that will sustain them in life where, hey, you don't have to work hard. You can work smart and you can make a a lucrative life out of being in a certain category. And this is what she she, uh, had decided. She has her own foundation. It's called Grateful Education. Grateful for Education. Let me me get that right. Get that right. right, right. (laughs) For for education. And she's, uh, we we started this foundation three and a half years ago, worked through uh, COVID, still working it. And uh, she's her passion is teaching uh, children uh, how to survive and, and educate. So that's a great segue to. And that's perfect. Like that's exactly what we're talking about. This is something that you all lived in this community. You saw a need. You had the giftedness of your work and your life experience, and you created something new. Grateful for education, yeah. right? That that's never been there before. And now you're investing in the lives of these children who will then grow up to be to have more well-being than they would have without that experience. And so that to me is a sign of community resilience that is investing in future community resilience. I think you like, need with that one. I feel like if, if my life is over tomorrow, I really think that that's a, a great segue for what uh, we wanted to do in this world and that's to be stewards to our family and friends in our community. And it's like passing on stewardship too, right? Mm-hmm. Like we become stewards for those folks who then in turn become stewards of hope, maybe we hope (laughs) for the next generation after that. That's what the guy who was walking the kids through the neighborhood was doing. He was saying, you see this, you see this area of the city. This is yours. Mm -hmm. This is yours. And you get to help care for it. He was cultivating an awareness of stewardship. So like you said, when they get older, they're like, oh, I want to take care of this. This is mine. This is ours. This is our playground. This is our street. So that kind of cultivation of stewardship, it seems like he's walking the kids around the neighborhood and saying, look at how great this is. But what he's really doing is cultivating a sense of stewardship, shared stewardship for our community. Exactly. Perfectly said. I couldn't say that myself. Thank you. That was great. So uh, I appreciate this time. I know we're winding down. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and we are so grateful to our guest. And we want to leave with just three takeaways. I know there are more, but we want to sum up three. And the first one is um, the importance of knowledge, knowledge being power, being able to educate yourself with the facts, being able to share the facts with others, and really 
knowing then what you need. If you understand what's going on, what's happening to you, then you better understand what you need to be well. And then our second takeaway we think is around relationships and intentionally supporting resilience through those relationships. Not only the ones we have with each other, where when we go through difficult times, we check in, we debrief, we check in again, but also the relationship we cultivate within ourselves, how we are intentionally aware of building our own resilience in all the ways that we do that, the ways that work best for us. Yeah. And the third takeaway is about being good stewards, being stewards of that knowledge that we have, being good stewards of our life energy, practicing resilience, and then really investing in the community resilience so that you can grow future resilience. So as we go, always being good stewards of um, that we know, what we're caring for, the importance of caring for it, and then teaching others so that they may be good stewards in the future and always being a good steward of the hope that is in us because of what we've been through, because of the ways we are resilient and the ways that others have nurtured our resilience. Fantastic. Jamal, thank you so much for your insights and your uh, just sharing you with us for a little while today. Really appreciate it. So I just want to ask if there's anything else you'd like to share before we sign off. I would like to leave with these words uh, from uh, the Quran. And it says, with the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, surely by the token of time, man is at loss, except for those who have faith and enjoying in the mutual teachings of truth, patience, and consistency. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jamal. And for our listeners, thank you for joining us on this podcast episode. We invite you to check out our Mid-America ATTC website, where you can find past episodes of this podcast. You can also find a link to our virtual room of refuge. And there you can find a variety of support for your own well-being, access to our YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to our newsletter, Conscious Connections, there. Thank you for joining us. It is our hope that where you work and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring. 